Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group and hosted by cardiologist and top medical researcher, Dr. Michael Corrin. I'm Dr. Michael Corrin, here to host another episode of MedEvidence. And I have a tremendous guest today, Dr. Sunil Joshi is joining me. And he's an allergist, an immunologist, and somebody involved in organized medicine as a past president of the Duval County Medical Society and Foundation. And uh, we also have a shared passion in clinical research and have had some great discussion already about some really interesting things, including the hygiene hypothesis yes. of allergies. And we're going to jump into that. Well, we left it off in the last session talking about eosinophils. Yes. And talking about the fact that they're an immune cell that can do good or bad things. And perhaps uh, a mediator of different allergic issues that can affect multiple different tissues, mm -hmm. including uh, GI tract. We, we're doing studies as we speak in eosinophilic esophagitis. It can affect the heart, eosinophilic mm -hmm. myocarditis. Mm -hmm. And it can certainly cause asthma. Mm -hmm. And so uh, since asthma is your, your ballywick, let's talk a little bit about that. So let's talk about the role of eosinophils in asthma and then some of the interesting hypotheses about who's at risk for these things. Mm -hmm. And so definitely eosinophils play a role in asthma, okay? And the, the higher the eosinophil is in the bloodstream, if somebody gets a blood test where they just get their screening blood work done, if their eosinophils are above 300, those patients who have asthma typically have more severe asthma. And if you look at our entire population of severe asthmatics, you know, which makes up about 5 to 10% of all of the asthma patients that are out there, we, of course, see a skewed population and see a lot more. Of all of the severe asthmatics, between 70 and 90% of them have eosinophils mm -hmm. in their bloodstream, high eosinophils in the bloodstream. So we feel that the eosinophils drive their asthma to the point where they have to be on very high doses of inhaled steroids or other combination medicines just to control their asthma. Asthma, or they need to be on oral steroids, systemic steroids, to manage their asthma. So the eosinophils are a marker of severe asthmatics. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you, you mentioned uh, steroids, and we are running clinical trials as we speak in eosinophilic asthma. Mm -hmm. And so talk just a little bit about steroids versus some of the newer ideas for treating this. Yeah. And then um, we'll get into that a little bit more down the road, but I want you to set that up for a reason I'll, I'll get to in a second. Okay, so one of the things with asthma, as we know, since it is indeed the more severe it is, the more likely it is to be an eosinophilic disease, is we've learned through the years that steroids, whether they're topical steroids or oral steroids, do have a tendency to decrease eosinophils. Mm -hmm. So if you put eosinophils in a vat and put a drop of steroids in there, they would die, okay? Mm -hmm. so. The treatment of choice to manage eosinophilic asthma is topical inhaled steroids. So steroids that go directly into the lungs, get into the tissue, and then the, then kind of suppress the eosinophils that are in there so that you have less disease, less scar tissue being laid down, or less what we call remodeling. And those tend to work. When they're not working, then we have to go to oral steroids, systemic steroids, which we know that patients who have severe eosinophilic asthma, if they go on oral steroids, their eosinophils in the bloodstream drop at the same time that their symptoms improve. Okay, mm -hmm. So the steroids decrease their eosinophils in their bloodstream as well. Um, the problem is, of course, that steroids are 
are not safe. So if you're on steroids, oral steroids, at least two times a year or more, you have a three times increased risk of having a bone fracture mm. or a blood clot yeah. or even having sepsis, mm. not to mention long-term consequences. And by sepsis, I mean blood bloodstream infections, right? Mm. And so not to mention the long-term consequences of diabetes, um, osteoporosis, glaucoma, and cataracts that can be associated with steroids. The topical steroids are much less likely to do that, okay? And in fact, in using the recommended doses correctly, it would take somebody five years of using an inhaled steroid to equal one five-day course of an oral steroid, okay? Um, But if the inhaled steroids aren't working, that's where we're left with what do we do now, and we typically have had to do oral steroids. So explain a little bit more um, the difference between eosinophilic asthma and other forms of asthma and the use of steroids or other medications. Yeah, so eosinophilic asthma makes up the majority of severe asthmatics. Like I said, almost up to 90% of them. Mm. And the steroids, inhaled steroids, topical steroids do have a tendency to work a lot better in these folks. In folks in which their asthma is not driven by eosinophils, and they're typically then driven by what we call neutrophils, which are other forms of white blood cells, um, the inhaled steroids and oral steroids don't work nearly as well. They almost have more of a picture of a, of a COPD or maybe a smoker, mm-hmm. um, but in this case, they, they don't smoke and they have happen to have asthma. And so we're still using topical steroids, but in their cases, we're going to use more bronchodilators and more of what we call uh, muscarinic antagonists that actually prevent the, um, the the bronchial areas from producing phlegm and mucus, which also complicates these patients' symptoms. So what we would call triple therapy for these folks are going to be more likely to be effective than higher doses of inhaled steroids. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, those are even more difficult to, to, to treat because we don't necessarily have great treatment for the neutrophilic asthmatics. Now, do we have ways of going at the eosinophils more directly than steroids? Absolutely, we do. And that's one of the great things, you know, with the advances in medicine Mm -hmm. and in particular in immunology is we understand what are the mediators that drive eosinophils to come out of the bone marrow, survive when they're out of the bone marrow, and then go from the blood into the tissue. Mm -hmm. And we could target a bunch of different areas to prevent that. And so there are specific targets to to specific receptors that can help kill eosinophils, Mm -hmm. stop stop their survival and production in the bone marrow, and also some that prevent them from getting from the bloodstream into the tissue as well. Any of these in the market? Yeah, they are out there on the market, and we use them routinely in our patients um, who qualify for them. Mm-hmm. And there, there are some that block a certain um, inflammatory mediator that brings eosinophils out of the bone marrow, and it's called mm-hmm. IL-5, mm-hmm. and it blocks it directly, and it also can block that receptor on the cell. Then there are some that actually block the ability of the eosinophils to get into the tissue by, by decreasing uh, um, certain proteins that come onto the cell that drive it into the tissue as well. Um, and so, yeah, there's some out there that do that, that decrease eosinophils without us having to use oral steroids. Interesting, interesting. Now, are these type of drugs uh, equally good at treating eosinophilic asthma and other eosinophilic diseases, or we don't know that yet? Well, and that's where the clinical trials come into play, yeah. right? So some of them I are, knew they were coming into play. Yeah, <laughs> they come into play. And so obviously they, they, the ones that are on the market for asthma do help to decrease uh, exacerbation rates, and some of them help to decrease the need for oral steroids as well in these patients. Mm -hmm. There are some that also work for chronic sinusitis that have eosinophilic disease, which is called nasal polyps, and there are a few that are approved for that as well. But there are other disease processes we have to look at, like you were mentioning the eosinophils in the esophagus. Even just the eosinophils in the bloodstream, high levels of eosinophils in the bloodstream 
are not good for the body because they can start to attack these other organs such as the heart and the skin and the lungs and the kidney as well. And so uh, we're, you know, there's some agents that just can reduce the eosinophils in the bloodstream as well. Interesting. So in your opinion, is the, the future of dealing with these issues going directly at the bone marrow or more tissue basis or somewhere in between? Well, where do the eosinophils cause the problem? Okay, mm -hmm. they cause the problem in the tissue. And so ultimately the goal should be, I, these are all theoretical goals, right? The goal is for the patient to be better, no matter sure. what the, oh, the yeah. case is, right? Mm -hmm. But the goal is for us to try to diminish the adverse effects of the eosinophils. Mm -hmm. So where do they have their adverse effects? In the tissue, mm -hmm. whether that's in the sinus cavity, in the lungs, in the heart, on the skin, that's where they do their damage. Mm -hmm. And so if we were able to develop um, you know, treatment options that can prevent the eosinophils from getting into the tissue, or if they're in the tissue, kill them while they're there, then we're winning the game. Gotcha. And so for these type of eosinophilic therapies, uh, just explain to people, are they pills, are they injections, how frequently do you get them, et cetera? Yeah, typically the ones that are on the market right now are injection therapies, okay? Mm -hmm. There are some that target the eosinophil directly that are every month. There's one of the agents that's done every other month. Mm -hmm. And we typically ask these people to come to our office to receive these injections, though they can do them at home as well. The FDA has approved that. I mean, and, th and then there's an agent that is the one that actually blocks the eosinophils directly from coming into the tissue. I mean, that's done every two weeks. Mm -hmm. And these are subcutaneous injections, so they're not IV. Mm -hmm. They're not going into the muscle. They're just going into the subcutaneous fat, almost like a diabetic needle. Now, you mentioned uh, interleukins and, mm -hmm. and things that block interleukins. And I'm not an allergy or immunologist, but I can explain that those are, are protein signals that amplify mm -hmm. the immune system, particularly eosinophils in this case. Yes. So maybe comment a little bit more on how... It, that works in mm -hmm. terms of the therapies and whether or not we're doing direct poisons to the eosinophils or we're blocking the mechanisms to amplify their numbers or okay. their effects. And we're doing both. And ah. so, so one of the interleukins is IL-5, okay? Mm -hmm. And this, this uh, molecule IL-5 is important for the eosinophils to, to, to develop in the bone marrow, come out of the bone marrow, and come into tissue. There's an agent that blocks IL-5 directly. Mm -hmm. And as it blocks IL-5 directly, it can reduce eosinophils in the peripheral bloodstream by 75% within two days. Wow. Okay. Significant decrease. Then there's an agent that actually blocks the receptor for IL-5, which ah. is found on the eosinophil itself. And as it blocks that receptor for IL-5, the body recognizes it and kills the eosinophil. Oh, wow. So these eosinophils come out of the bone marrow, but then are killed um, by because of this particular agent. Okay, so, so you target the IL-5 directly, which is important for eosinophil survival, or you target the receptor for IL-5, so the IL-5 can't do anything to the eosinophils, but the body recognizes that to kill it. So two different ways to reduce eosinophil count. Fascinating. And, and how long does that treatment last? Like, how, is it recurrent? Um, this gives a little insight into yeah, that. Yeah, so you do need to do the treatment once a month if you're mm -hmm. blocking IL-5 directly. If you're actually killing the eosinophil right now, that particular agent is used every two months. Mm -hmm. And is this something that people are committed to for life, or how long is a typical course? Well, and that's a good question. So we don't... We don't modify the progression of the disease with these agents. So in other words, when you stop it, theoretically the symptoms should come back, okay? Mm -hmm. So, but we hate to tell people that they're going to be on something lifelong. Mm -hmm. So the, each doctor is different and anecdotally speaking, my patients wanna come off of drugs once they're better. And so we, we kind of come to an agreement that we'll do this for a year, maybe two, get you really well controlled. And then we can try to slowly back off on the agent, understanding that each patient is different. Mm -hmm. And so 
every patient doesn't fit what we see in the studies. Mm -hmm. And there may be some patients who instead of needing it once a month, might be able to get away with it once every three months, mm -hmm. or maybe even stop it completely. Their eosinophil count may come back up, but if we're able to manage their disease, remember we're treating the patient. Mm -hmm. If we're able to manage their disease and they're better, then maybe they don't need the agent anymore. Interesting, interesting. So um, we are, as you mentioned, doing clinical trials in these area, in this area and, and using these type of products. Are there any snippets that you can share, for example, um, people who are being treated for eosinophilic disease in one realm that seem to get benefits in another realm? Or give us a little sense about this crossover phenomenon. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so so obviously, you know, we as medical professionals are to use drugs for what they're intended to be used for, but we sometimes have hopes that it'll help with something <laughs> right. else, right? Exactly, yeah. And so we see that absolutely. I've seen that in mm. my patients. I had the what, the very first patient that I put on an anti IL five drug. Yeah. Okay, was a lady who had a, a severe eosinophilic asthma, mm. but also had chronic sinus disease and had eosinophilic esophagitis wow. okay interesting and so this lady i'm like okay we really need to help her asthma out um she was requiring oral steroids very frequently she was interested in something that was not steroid based we, we got the drug approved for her we reduced her eosinophil count very quickly her asthma got better but suddenly she was swallowing better too she was having much less acid reflux much less heartburn and then about a year into treatment she went to go see her gi for her regular upper endoscopy and the eosinophils were gone Interesting. Okay. Wow. And so she here now her asthma is really well controlled and I haven't had her on steroids in about three years. And I'm thinking about backing off yeah, on the yeah. agent. She doesn't want to stop it because <laughs> it's helped her heartburn. Wow. The eosinophilic esophagitis it. has gotten better. Yeah. And she's like, no, I don't want to stop it. And so, um, so that's it. That's just an anecdotal example. Right. But there are other people, similar things with their sinuses and their skin as well. That's fabulous. Well, I love that anecdote. Yeah. And we're going to go into this um, concept of cross-fertilization of different disease processes in our next segment. Yes. Thanks for joining the MedEvidence podcast. To learn more, head over to medevidence.info or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform.